0: deep beyond that, that James, um, has, James has come. He is obviously a visiting fellow of the International Security um, Department at Chatham um, House, but he's had a great deal of more experience than just working uh, in Chatham House, in the Ministry of Defense, and of course was uh, prominent within the design of the 2010 uh, SDSR program. Oh. Um, well, He's obviously been in diplomatic service as well, serving in New York, the United Nations, Berlin, Washington, San Diego, and London. Uh, and uh, you may be aware of some of the uh, recent things in Britain. Um, I brought one on here after the battle, the blame game, uh, which you haven't read this article. Very interesting article about comparing uh, the outcome of the blame game on the First World War with what's been going on in recent years. Uh, his reports uh, on uh, depending on the right people? Question mark. British political and relations, 2001, and 2009. Um, obviously analyzes this relationship between our senior leaders, senior officers, and the civil service uh, in this last decade, uh, and obviously in the last two most prominent conflicts, well, three prominent conflicts. Um, I'm not going to say any more introduction to that, because essentially I don't want to steal your sandwiches. So, um, I'm, going right uh, so I'm going to have a straight to you Thank, you, Thank you very much indeed. Thank
1: you very much. Well, um, my article about the First World War, I mean, I'm not, certainly not an expert on the First World War, but rather like you, um, it's a useful opportunity to make a I'm also not uh, an academic, although now I'm turning myself into one. Um, I, uh, I've had a career already in the Foreign Office and a few years in the Ministry of Defence, and my approach to these issues is therefore one which you know, may not have all the rigour and um, Olympian vision which I've come to associate with academics, but is very much a practitioner's And it's a practitioner's perspective from someone who not only did a lot of practice, but also found (coughs) themselves quite concerned about some of the things (coughs) that they experienced in government, and particularly a sense of um, what had gone wrong. And I'm going to talk to you a a bit today about um, principally some of the material that's covered in my report that Rob mentioned, um, depending on the right people, um, about (coughs) <coughs> as Rob said, um, uh, politicians, senior military officers and civil servants, in my view, did not work well together during the last 10 to 15 years. Um, and a little bit about some of on the other things that have come up uh, in this recent past. I mean, One of the reasons why I'm pleased to be coming to address this group is that I think uh, some of the other speakers you've had at these seminars over the years have both provided a lot of very useful material to people like me but also, to my mind, presented some of the arguments which I would like to counter and resist. And I'll explain a bit bit more about that as I go on. The the main reason why I uh, started taking interest in this question of political and military relations in the UK is a sense, really, that um, we've had a very unsuccessful period in Britain in terms of our overseas military intervention. I think our wars in Afghanistan and Iraq have been fundamentally unsuccessful operations both in terms of their aims, but also in terms of the way that they were managed and organized and run. And my focus today is less on whether they were the right war or not, but more on this question of how they were were managed and run. And my my, uh, attitude is really, when things go this wrong, first of all, I want to know what went wrong and why, and secondly, I want to know how you can avoid repeating these mistakes in the future. There's also a sense that um, I was, um, I had a sense of, sort of unfairness about the way a lot of the British debate about Iraq and Afghanistan had, uh, had worked out, in that there was a high degree of blame um, focused on the role of the politicians, in particular Tony Blair, who's kind of a demonic figure for many, um, which neglected the other elements of the British government, which also had a very key part in it. Both military and civilian. And apart from a sense that this was wrong, that this was unfair, I also thought that if you are focusing solely on the personality of Tony Blair or the role of the politicians, you're missing a trick, you're missing understanding actually of how things uh, worked or didn't work. And that was really the fundamental um, motivation for me to start looking at this subject. It was also triggered a bit by my own experience in government, working in the Ministry of Defence, seeing how things really operated. An eye for me, and a sense that within government, there is um, there's a big gap between the way that people inside government and outside government, in academia or the media, uh, think that things happen. And in government, for example, everyone <coughs> works on the assumption that the armed forces, for example, are powerful, strong institutions which will work in political, a political way uh, to achieve their ends, either consciously or unconsciously outside government I found often that there's this rather kind of um, black and white view that really it is mainly the people who are being questioned and criticised on the Today programme or on Newsnight who tend to be politicians who are primarily responsible for things and as a way that um, appeared in this book that it's the politicians who deal out the cards and it's really the generals who are um, then left to clear up the mess, or as Jonathan Bailey, I'm assuming, put it, um, uh, quotation that really struck in my mind um, the generals played their hand, but they didn't deal it. My argument is that in many cases, in Britain's military campaigns uh, in the last 10 to 15 years, the generals also played a strong role in playing the hand, and it was partly a failure on the part of the politicians or the civil servants they didn't adopt more of that role themselves and allowed the generals really to do that and the admirals and air marshals. Now, the main themes of my um, uh, my investigations are that the decision-making process that really worked quite successfully for Britain between the years of 1997 and 2000 uh, failed when it came under pressure of uh, the events of 9-11 and the change in the US policy in terms of its military operations overseas. Um, practices and approaches which had worked well in the past were not resilient enough to cope with the extraordinary pressures that were put on them after 9-11. And I think it's worth emphasizing that this really was a massive shock to the system. I mean, i had never experienced anything in my personal life or my experience in government that rivals like to the dislocating shock which was, which was experienced throughout the governmental system through the country by the wars of 9/11, the events of 9/11. So this was was a big shock, and to some degree it was um, it's not unexpected that the government system should not have been um, uh, resilient enough to cope with that. But again, I think we need to recognise that and understand that, rather than saying it was all one sort of people's problem or another. I think there was also a failure to link uh, military operations to their political ends, and here and others have have their own. For why this happened, (coughs) how it might uh, not work. I think the failure of the political military relationship was was part of that. And I think also there was a lack of political control over (coughs) uh, what the armed forces were doing. And this was particularly a problem because our system of democratic accountability is based on politicians having active control over what the armed forces are doing in the national uh, interest and in the nation's name. And if you don't have that degree of political control, how do you have proper? Now, my research has been criticized by some people as being anti military, or specifically sometimes anti army, because I talk a lot about generals in particular. Um, I would argue that it only comes across as critical <coughs> in comparison with the tone of a lot of the debate, which says almost puts the military on a pedestal and, as I say, demonizes the politicians. And in fact, my, my criticism is not so much directed at one lot of people or another. Lot but actually as a criticism that really is focused on the system. In particular, I think that politicians <coughs> did not um, assert themselves to exercise active control of energy operations. Rather, they treated the energy as one constituency to be conciliated or pacified or, um, or exploited sometimes. I think the Foreign Office, institutionally, did not really see war as their business. Uh, they did not um, give advice in a way to ensure that military operations supported diplomatic (coughs) aims, or indeed that diplomatic aims would then support military operations, beyond the most narrow attempt to, say, build coalitions and maintain coalitions. I think the civilian side of the Ministry of Defence failed to ensure this political-military link, this link between military And I think that elements within the armed forces, the British armed forces, actively lobbied in a political way, including through the press, to support their institutional interests and their own views in ways which were not necessarily in the national interest. And one of the striking things that I found looking at this is that pretty much everyone involved, who I've just criticised, thought they were acting correctly, thought they were acting properly and in the national interest. as part of my paper, and also uh, my research since, I've looked at a number of examples of this. And I've, I will run through a number, partly because I think even though my analysis in one or other cases may be wrong, there's a sufficient case just in a number of problems that I think have happened to suggest that there is something wrong with the system. One of the important examples I look at is the decision to contribute a British ground force to the invasion of Iraq so-called package three decision. When the government was thinking what it ought to do in terms of if it was necessary to invade Iraq, they looked at a number of different military options, package one, package two, package three. Package one <coughs> essentially was um, special forces, some intelligence activity, but actually quite light and remote. Package two was essentially uh, naval and air forces, really the forces that Britain already had in the Gulf, mm-hmm. but not mm-hmm. really with any ground force components. Package three was the one that eventually um, uh, took place, which was all the air, maritime, special forces, and intelligence elements in the other two packages, but also with a large ground force based around a British division of around 30,000, 35,000 personnel, which as matters worked out, really represented almost a third of the entire coalition forces that went into Iraq. Now this was important, uh, not just militarily, but politically. I mean, for one thing, it entailed a high level of cost Potential risk both to expenditure and to lives. But also, um, the fact that this ground force ended up being used to take control of a part of Iraqi territory gave Britain formal responsibility under the Hague Conventions <coughs> and for the security of the territory that it was occupying, notably Basra. Therefore, everything that went wrong in Basra after the British. Now, (laughs) one would expect, if things were working properly, that a decision like that would be based on, for political reasons, that there would be some clear political interest that the nation had that meant that that sort of military force was what was necessary and what to be used. To my mind, that didn't happen. This decision was not taken for political reasons. There were a number of factors in play, one of which was um, military planning would kind of assume that this was the sort of thing that you would do if you were faced with another war. In the 1997-1998 strategic defence review, the structure of forces that was imagined in that review, the purposes for which they might be used, it imagined that the ground force of this size was the sort of thing you would be using in these circumstances. So there's an element, I think, of the military picking that plan <coughs> itself and saying these circumstances are what we thought about, therefore this is the way to deal with it. Um, with no real further analysis than that. But I think more critically, to my mind, was the um, question that this was a result of lobbying by the British Army to be engaged in a military operation that it was concerned that it would not be involved in, it was going to be left out. As far as the documents that have been released through the Chilcot Inquiry, the Iraq Inquiry show, and the testimony of witnesses, the people in Number Ten were happy that Britain's political and strategic aims—political aims, careful aims, my terminology—would be achieved through only using Package One or Package Two. So this aims to do something um, practical to do with Saddam, plus do enough to keep on side with the Americans to maintain the American relationship. could be done with package two, just air and maritime special forces intelligence. The reason why, but they were very, very um, nervous about criticism from the army. And there is uh, there are a number of documents that Chilcot Inquiry has published which show, for example, quotations like Minutes from officials within number 10 saying there is another attempt by the army to bounce you into taking a decision, to h- rush you into taking decision uh, on ground forces um, because it fits in there with their uh, institutional interests. And there are some particular documents that say if we don't use the army, we will face criticism from the army, there will be people in the army who are unhappy, and this. there isn't a clear train of evidence to say when this decision to go to package three was taken and what grounds were. But it does seem a very clear sign that this sort of lobbying had an impact on decision makers in number 10. At a time when they were domestically, um, politically weak, when they were pursuing a policy which was intensely controversial, (coughs) they did not want to open up another (coughs) flank to be criticized in the media by a powerful institution. And that does seem to my mind to, be, to have been a key driving factor in this decision to launch a ground invasion of Iraq, or use British forces for the ground invasion. In some <coughs> degree, I would say that the reason why Britain found itself fighting an unexpected counter-insurgency campaign in the southern Iraq was not because the state had planned this as a necessary thing to, to do, but because the army lobbied so as not to. second example um, I look at is this um, is in Helmut in Afghanistan in 2006. The decision to um, move British forces from basically being concentrated around the capital in the south into the north, into a much more contested area, which, uh, as a number of people have testified, had the result of kicking off uh, a major. Famously, John Reed, the defence secretary, had said he would be pleased if we came out of that without a shot. Instead, we found ourselves in a major, major war. <coughs> now, in contrast with the package three decision, this decision to move from the relatively peaceful capital south into the war was not taken by ministers under pressure from institutional interests. It seems to be taken without ministers being involved at all. The testimony on this is um, controversial and there is, again, a lack of clarity but it does seem that this was a decision that was taken by the military commander on the spot, admittedly with some involvement from in the local Foreign Office representatives, but without ministers being fully involved in it. It happened at a time when one defense secretary, John Reid, was handing it over to another, Des Brown. And it seems <coughs> to have happened without any clear record or documents or meetings that have since been, been publicly, uh, publicly reviewed. Now I don't make the argument that this was made by, this was a decision that was made by the Army. To me this is a failure of the system. It's a failure of uh, the military to realize the political consequences of what they were doing. It's a failure also, to my mind, of the politicians to take an appropriate interest in the detail of the military operations. John Reid, the Defence Secretary, is on record as saying to the House of Commons Defence Committee, which looked into precisely this question, that he saw his role in uh, thinking about the military planning for the helmet. Saying, is it going to come in on budget, and are other government departments going to be doing their bit to support the military effort? He's not interested really in the operational detail of what's happening and whether that will or won't achieve the political objectives that the government has set up. This time. Des Brown, his successor, um, to my mind, um, took a position which is equally, um, uh, you know, perhaps worthy of criticism, in that he took responsibility for the decision, for the reason he wasn't involved in the decision-making that lay behind this, but he thought the honourable thing to do as defence secretary to say, yes, I take full responsibility for this, even though I wasn't involved in the decision. Now, To one degree, that is an honourable position. It would know, be difficult if defence secretaries disassociate themselves from what their um, armed forces were doing. But it does beg the question, how do you have ministerial accountability? How do you have democratic accountability for what is going on? Ministers don't know what their departments are doing. They don't know what the people for whom they are responsible are doing, in this case the armed forces. How can you properly hold them to account? The third uh, example I look at is the example of um, General Sir Richard Dannett, who was the head of the British Army in the mid-2000s, who was quite a controversial figure. Um, but who, one of the things he did was he gave an interview to the Daily Mail in 2006 which led to an article being published called a very honest <coughs> thing and in among other things in this interview he said that implied very clearly that the british should leave Iraq because they were adding to the problems and he lobbied for a reduction in british social security spending and an increase in the military budget he did this really without briefing anyone else in government This caused a big stir. Uh, it came at a time when the government was already under fire over its uh, Afghan policy and over its funding for the armed forces. It also triggered concerns from Britain's allies that said, are you committed to Iraq or not? What does this general say? Uh, so, um, it caused a big stir in, um, in number 10 in, among the political class, who felt that they had suddenly been surprised and outflanked by a general whose job really was to on his side, General Danner thought he was fully justified in doing this. He thought part of his job as head of the army, army, professional head of the army, was to act in this sort of way as a trade union representative, to say things about that he thought, um, where he thought the army was not being well treated, where it ought to be better paid. And in fact, he conducted, this wasn't an isolated incident, he conducted a whole series of off the record briefings or on the record interviews which said many of the same thing going <coughs> up, to this, up to this point. he writes about this in now, um, one might think that when you have <coughs> a, uh, a head of government, a prime minister, who thinks that one of his chief generals is saying something which is not in line with government policy, that that might mean that the general is dismissed. Number 10 did not do this. Jonathan Powell, who's chief of staff at Number 10 at the time, said in his book, his account of this story, they did not want to make a martyr. Uh, they thought that this would uh, maintain the press interest in the story and turn it into a, a long-running. Me, that is another uh, problem. I mean, not only is there some confusion about what the head of the army thinks his job is and what number 10 thinks his job is, but also number 10, the political, the political direction, the ones who are democratically accountable, feel they are not able to control um, their senior public officials <coughs> because of their fear of what the press might say, because of the political context. <coughs> that was also a factor in my fourth example, which is uh, the argument. Took place in 2008 2009 over whether British forces should be reinforced in Helmand. And this has been discussed in a number of uh, books about the Blair and Brown administrations, particularly one by Anthony Seldon. What seems to have happened at this time, the, uh, the army was, do uh, uh, you want to talk about the army? I should say no, it's the armed forces and the Ministry of Defence. We're making a case that British forces in Helmand ought to be reinforced to try and rescue something from the difficult situation that was there at a time when Number 10 was very concerned that this was an unpopular war, and where their instinct was to limit British liability. Now what seems to have happened is that Number 10 eventually accepted the military judgments. and this was the argument, this was the government of Gordon Brown, who was in a very weak situation anyway. They accepted the military advice to reinforce in Helmand, not because they agreed with the military arguments, but because they were scared that if they didn't do so, the military would then continue their briefing of the press, um, uh, that the government policy was wrong. They were very, uh, they were worried, rather as in the package food decision in Iraq, that if they didn't keep the military happy, this discontent would come into the media mm-hmm. at a time when the government was weak and, um, and cause problems for them. Now, you may agree with the, uh, with the uh, it may be that the military was right. Maybe they were right to say that in terms of achieving the military objectives or political but it does seem to me an example of how the procedure did not work. It seems to be wrong that decisions about these armed forces should be taken on the basis of the relative standing of the British media of the armed forces of the number 10. Now again, I would argue that there is fault on both sides here. There is as much um, the responsibility of politicians actively to exert themselves and not take the easy option when they do have the But I also wonder about the uh, correctness of the armed forces having this relationship with the press, which enables them to relay this discontent in a way which then causes problems to the armed forces. Now, my last example is not in my uh, paper, which I has, because I read about it afterwards, and in fact, it's drawn from a lecture that was given to this group by Gregor um, Justin Maschewski, and also, I think, General sheriff although that uh, was, um, I think, probably off the record. Um, it's, it's set out in this book is about the conduct of Operation Sinbad, a very um, difficult and quite bloody British military operation in Basra in 2008-2009. This was an operation which, to my mind, was essentially the initiative of the British commander in Iraq at the time, General Shogun, against the policy of both the British government and the Iraqi government. He felt, perhaps rightly, that the British were not taking as strong a line in exerting their authority and their control over Basra in the face of the militias and criminal gangs that were, um, uh, that were running the city. He felt there was defeatism in Whitehall and in permanent headquarters, and that actually um, something needed to be done and he was the man to do it. And one of the reasons why he did this, according to the account by Justin Rosheski in that book, is that he was concerned about the reputation of the British Army did not feel that the British Army should emerge from Iraq with its reputation as having lost a war, and that having this sort of assertive, aggressive military operation to re establish British control was one of the ways in which you could, you could fix that. Unsurprisingly, because this was a particular initiative for him, he did not get the backing from London and from permanent Joint Headquarters that he thought he deserved. There weren't sufficient forces. Seems to be astonishing that you could, that you had an insurgency not just in Iraq against the British forces, but among you know, important members of the British Army who had the freedom to do something like that, which was in breach of British government policy, and not be reined in. I'm, I'm not really exaggerating; this, it does seem to me to be, uh, according to the accounts of uh, of Shirith and uh, others involved, this does seem to be the way that things uh, operated. That to me seems to be problem. The strikes one, as I said earlier, when you look at all these examples, (coughs) is that um, a lot of those involved thought they were doing the right thing, thought they were acting properly, thought, in the case of General Sheriff, that he was correct in his assessment, that it was important to the nation, perhaps, that the British Army maintained its reputation. And in fact, as an analyst, I have my own views on a lot of uh, what happened, but it's very, very difficult to say with any degree of authority who was right and who was wrong. A lot of it is just a matter of judgment. And the reason why I find this, I think this is very difficult in Britain is because there is no real established system of uh, uh, laid down rules for political military relations, laid down rules for the way that things take decisions of this sort. (coughs) Laid down rules for um, judging whether a military officer is behaving correctly, at what point he should. It seems to be the British system works fine when the personalities involved get on with one another or are sufficiently powerful to um, exert. (coughs) It works poorly when you don't have that. And that is one of the reasons why I entitled my report, Depending on the Right People. The British system basically depends, it works, its functioning depends on the right sort of person being involved and having the right instance. When you had a system as you did, or situation as you did in the late 1990s where Prime Minister and Chief of Defence Staff, Lord Guthrie, got on very well, had mutual respect, seemed to understand how that things worked. When you had a system in the late 90s and the early 90s where Balister Campbell, the Prime Minister's Chief of Communications, ran an absolutely dominant um, controlling system mm-hmm. over what various people in the government were able to say to the press, you didn't have this sort of a problem with general speaking in an unorthodox way. When you had people like General Danner, Who interpreted their roles in a different way and who acted in a different way, you got problems. And part of this, as I say, is because there is no, there's neither a formal nor an informal system in Britain for saying how people who, op- who occupy these roles, Prime Minister, Defence Secretary, Foreign Secretary, Chief of Defence Staff, should actually cooperate together. There are formal structures, but there's very little software that says that your role to make this structure work should be to act in this way. I think there's a contrast here with the U.S. system, where you do have some um, some laws. You have the Goldwater-Nichols law, uh, uh, notably, which establishes a very clear line of control. You have um, a whole range of experience from the founding of the U.S. onwards, where there is, you know, the, the relationship between the armed forces and political politicians is a very key part of the uh, uh, national debate. Um, you have um, repeated experience of senior military officers being dismissed, or on the other hand, appointed by politicians who have been happy or unhappy with their performance. And you also have a very, very lively debate. Um, You have a lot of defense intellectuals who engage in this, who write books about it, who are constantly discussing about it. It's constantly a live debate in in the American um, political world. Now, of course, this doesn't guarantee success. Particularly in this case, you know, in all the uh, areas that form the examples that I talked about, you could probably have examples of how the US system did not work. Mostly Donald Rumsfeld using a lot of the um, uh, the tone of the American debate to say there needs to be political control, therefore, my views about what is the right way to wage this war are the correct ones, overruling military ones. So it doesn't guarantee success. But it does seem Also, because people are thinking about this and talking about this, when they find themselves in a position as defence secretary, as prime minister, as chief of defence staff, you have a hint of that. You have a preparation for the role that you want to occupy. You've thought about some of these issues, rather than just having to respond when the uh, opportunity comes up, and particularly when everyone is under enormous pressure because of some big international crisis or change in the international environment. And this is why. Um, I've really made some recommendations in the report. One is for um, a code of conduct, somehow, or to um, govern this sort of relationship. Now, to be honest, this code of conduct is a slight stalking horse. I haven't really um, looked into what detail it ought to be, how it ought to operate, how it ought to relate <coughs> to the laws that go on in government. But it's partly a way to um, suggest that there ought to be to trigger a bit more debate about this issue, but partly to say, Make the argument that whatever we do in Britain, we need a more systematic approach. We can't just continue to depend on the person <coughs> to get it right. And as I say, one of the things I hope through this recommendation is to trigger a bit more discussion about this, which again is one reason why I'm so pleased to come to this. It does seem to me that real discussion about the relationship, the political military relationship, is absent in Britain, <coughs> but it's still increasing, it's still very, very important if you look at a whole range of defence related issues. To my mind, the strategic defence review in 2010 was fundamentally about re-establishing political control of the armed forces. It's about re-establishing discipline. It it's about re-establishing control of the budget in the Ministry of Defence, but also it was saying this is going to be essentially controlled exercise, masterminded from number 10. We will <coughs> allow you in the armed forces to have your say and to engage, but we're the ones who will re decide um, and you know that was that to be essential control was one of the things that actually the review was criti- criticised for. But to my mind, that was an essential um, act. Actually, if you're going to ensure proper democratic accountability, <coughs> I think in all the um, continuing uh, military operations that Britain has been engaged in, in or needing. Libya, there are a number of concerns about things that uh, various a senior admirals said about which we have overstretched the operations putting on the armed forces. There was a question, um, not very well concealed, doubts from uh, the Chief of Defence Staff at the time about what was the British plan. You know, probably a good question to ask at the time, but whether that should have been coming out publicly in the way that it did, I doubt. Uh, same concerns came out of a lot of the debate about Syria. You know, what's the plan? Where are we going? And it was, it was this time in the Libya debate in particular that Prime Minister Cameron effectively, you know, famously said when asked about all this sort of complaining that was coming up through the media, message the military, you do the fighting, I'll do the talking. To my mind, that is one of the very few statements from a British political leader about how our political military relations work. So I thought, you know, he's done his bit. <coughs> there was also a situation where, again, there was. say this idea of having a dead in Hellman saying we're all going to be out of the 24th or 14th is a bad idea. It, makes us, uh, it looks bad. It makes no military sense. It's hostage to fortune. Again, number ten resisted that. So We're not going to have any of that. We're going to carry on maintaining this uh, end-state deadline, which admittedly may have all these military uh, problems that you suggest, but actually related to our overall goal, All these issues are still sort of bubbling there with all those strong political and military dimension. I think there's a discussion about whether the changes in structures of government, particularly the invention of the National Security Council, have changed matters. To my mind, it hasn't really affected, again, as I say, this lack of systematic approach. You have an institution, but do you have the system to make that institution work? From what one hears about the National Security Council, it does seem to function as a sort of arbitration mechanism various um, uh, different strands of opinion that are around Whitehall, sometimes military, sometimes foreign office, sometimes intelligence agency. It is perhaps establishing a sort of common law of of practice by experience, which kind of shape the way that um, Britain will approach these sorts of matters in the future. But my concern is that once you have a change of personality, (coughs) if you have a change of government, there is not enough of a system there to make sure that the next group of people will behave in the same way. So again, it's to me an example of this um, characteristic in British government, that um, if you want to change something, you change the processes. And that is good so far as it goes, but to my mind, does not do anything like enough to change, as I say, what is fundamentally a lack of a system. So just to conclude, I think that <coughs> this is a, a question of political relations, or calling it political military is a, is a slight shorthand, because as I say, I think there's a key role issue is the role of civilian officials, of diplomats, and the civilians in the Ministry of Defense. This strikes me, this is a, an absolutely key element of any discussion about what Britain should be doing with Indeed, terror, indeed, what, what most um, Western-style democracies should be doing with the in the world. But as I say, I do think it's largely being neglected is often uh, covered in a very um, black-and-white, shorthand, superficial way, particularly in the media. And what I hope to do with this paper, with this sort of discussion, with these sorts of debates, which I'm trying to uh, continue, is to encourage a bit more of a debate about this, and also for people to tell me my analysis is wrong. You know, at least that would be good. At least we be an <coughs> argument about it, which would be an improvement from where we are at the moment. So okay.